So before I do start, I wanted to ask Kate. Katie has uh, offered to just pray for this time to just recenter our hearts on God's word. Um, so Katie, thanks for being willing to do that. And I think this microphone should be fine for you. Nope. It's not on mute, but it's not coming out. This is the, there you go. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. So guys, would you guys mind uh, just praying with Katie as she prays for this time? Lord, just thank you that we could gather here today, Lord, in your name. Just thank you for the service and that we got to praise you for Albert, God, and just for all the blessings here. I ask that your name would be glorified through the sermon and through our time afterward, God. Just open our hearts for the preaching of the word and what you would have to say for us, Holy Spirit, for each individual and for as a group, God. I just ask that you would bless Albert as he's teaching God, that you would protect him from error and give him encouragement in his heart as he shares truth with us, God. And as we go out from here to Thanksgiving, Lord, just be with each individual and bring encouragement for whatever blessings or trials are going on. Just thanks again for this chance to meet with you today. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Katie, thank you so much. Um, so just a, a real quick, what we're going to be doing over the next, Lord willing, what we're going to be doing over the next weeks into the next couple of months. So today we're going to kind of finish that, that uh, series we've been doing uh, on evangelism. It started with Gabe, climaxed in our fall harvest, and then I've given a couple of follow-up messages, the second of which we're going to finish today. Next Sunday is Thanksgiving, and next Sunday's time is going to be, um, we're going to try to do something a little bit unique. Um, we're going to try to have a longer time of thanksgiving and praise from involving you guys. We're, we're asking specific people to bring praises and thanksgiving to God, but we're actually going to ask everybody to, um, to, to spend some time this week asking God if he can give them in their, bring to mind uh, praises about what he's done in their life, what he's doing in their life, that they can share with each other. Uh, Something you see in the Psalms again and again and again, and you see it in 1 Corinthians 14, is that praise is to be shared among God's people. That when God does something in our lives, uh, he isn't just doing it for our lives, but he's doing it for one another. And the way that we strengthen one another and nourish one another is by sharing what God is doing. And so since it is Thanksgiving week, we are going to make a special point next week of asking you guys to bring thanksgiving and praise to God. Um, and so we'll have a much shorter message, and it will just be primarily just a short devotional for communion, and the rest of the time will be spent on praising and thanking God. And I know there is, there's a, I, I hate to be this specific, but there's a couple of people that I really wanted to have in here who aren't in here right now. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to have to just look out the door and see if these guys are stepped out. Um, this is so weird, but... Oh, they're in the kitchen? Oh, okay. Oh, they, well, that's in the vestibule. Is there one in the, in the uh, room there? I'm sorry to call you guys out, but when I, when I, um, I feel like a truant officer. Um, but, you know, time is short. Life is short. We don't know what we have coming. And I just, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, I think this is a message for people who are new to our community particularly. I, I want them to be able to hear this message. Um, 
because we, we've been doing this, this little series on evangelism. We've been focusing on, on, on how, to, how to be motivated to share the gospel, how to live in such a way that people want to know about the gospel. And the last couple of messages I've been talking about, or the last message, and today's the second of that, I've been specifically speaking to, 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 to answer the question, how does God want us to respond to the gospel? So part of sharing the gospel well is helping people understand what God is asking of them in response. We, we all want to be better at evangelism. We all want to be ready for those opportunities. We all want to be able to speak about what Christ has done. But could you imagine how tragic it would be to set before someone the idea, central to Christianity, of how to escape, of, of, of rather, of the escape that Christ provides from eternal punishment and the hope that he provides of eternal life and yet leave people like really unaware or confused about how they can respond to that or how, how, how sad and even dangerous to present something of Christ to someone who has expressed interest and yet leave them feeling satisfied about their state with God when they haven't responded to who he is the way that he calls them to. Like many of you guys, I grew up in church as a kid. I spent 20 years going to church on Sundays, and I did not understand. I understood that this Jesus guy who was on this cross, and I could see him on the cross. They had statues in my church of Jesus on the cross every Sunday. I understood that he he was the blood, he was the, the Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sins of the world. I understood that that he was the Savior. I understood that God was holy. I didn't understand for 20 years how to get that. Like, I, I didn't understand for 20 years how I could receive that. In fact, what I did think was how to receive that, what I did think about how I could get him and get that cross and get that salvation wasn't true. And how I understood I could do it actually kept me from receiving it. So it's really important that we not only understand the facts about the gospel that Christ died and rose for us, but how we, and for ourselves, we need to come back to this again and again, but how we can explain to others how they can receive what Christ has done. And of course, listen, I believe that God has to be at work before in our hearts to make that reception possible. But he also calls us to tell people how to receive him. Okay, so it's important for us to know how we can tell someone when they say, like the, like the, the listeners in Peter's uh, first sermon in Acts 2, when they say, how can we be saved? That we can answer that question for someone. So let me make sure I've got the right call here. So that's what we're considering this morning. How should one respond to the gospel. We want to do our best to not only give an answer for the hope that lies within us, as First Peter 3.15 calls us to, but to be able to answer when someone, by God's grace, asks, what must I do to be saved? Last time, I sought to convince you from God's word that what God calls forth from everyone who hears the gospel can really, really be brought under two major categories, repentance and faith. And we spoke last time about repentance. I argued from scripture. Brandon, do we have this? That to repent biblically, if we go back a few slides, uh, next one, 
next one, next one, next one. Yeah, that to repent biblically is to have a fundamental change of mind and heart about our sins and about God that leads to a changed life. And if you didn't hear that message, hopefully it will be posted this week. Um, but, but go back because that's kind of the first part of this message, what repentance is, what repentance isn't. Today we're going to ask about the other side of that coin. Repentance and faith go together. And today we're going to ask, what is faith? And, and, and I, again, before we leave repentance, I want to make clear, repentance and faith can't really be separated. They can't really be separated too strictly. They're really like two sides of the same coin. You know, if, if sin is over here and God is over here, coming to Jesus looks like this. You know, so you can ask, are you turning from sin or are you turning to God? And the answer is yes. So that's how repentance and faith sort of go together. Uh, While repentance largely characterizes our attitude towards our sinfulness and and our recognizing that it's wrong and our attitude towards God's holiness, recognizing that that he deserves to be our king and he's good. And uh, uh, repentance largely characterizes the conviction that we need a savior. Faith largely characterizes the conviction that we have or there is a savior in Christ. If in repentance we see sin in light of God's goodness and we're convicted of its awfulness, of its wrongness, if in repentance we're convicted of our rebellion against God and we're convicted about his goodness and his right to be our Lord, then in faith, we, we're convicted that he is worthy to be trusted for salvation. We're convinced that he is worthy to be hoped in for mercy. So repentance is turning away in our hearts from what we used to think about sin and what we used to think about God. And faith, in a sense, is turning to God for his forgiveness and his mercy. And uh, uh, they're interchangeable. So they're, they're part of the same sort of construct. They describe two aspects of really the same thing going on. Biblical repentance, that is, and biblical faith. But I, wanted, I do want to focus on faith. And in faith, we're turning to God and we're believing him to be and to do for us what he has promised to be and to do. The New Testament word for faith is pistis. It's a noun as in I have faith, right? The New Testament verb is pisteo as in I believe. You can hear the related. The pistis, pisteo words are part of the same word complex. So when used in the context, uh, context of fal- salvation, we, we believe, we're assured, we entrust ourselves, we place our trust in Jesus. In the New Testament, Christ is the primary object of faith. It is him that we believe in. It is him that we're assured by. It is him that we entrust our eternal souls to. But what does faith in Christ do? There are, and I know you know, he saves us, but I want to talk about this. There, there are two, there are, In the New Testament, there are different ways of describing what faith in Christ does for the believer. Like, let's take John's writings. Often in John's writings, faith is a means to eternal life. 
We might think of the famous verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will never perish but will have what? Right, everlasting life or eternal life depending on what addition you use. So it's believing in Jesus, depending on Jesus, trusting in him that results in eternal life. A life of joy and peace with God that will never end. That's largely how John characterizes what faith brings to you or gets for you, so to speak. In Paul's writing, it's, it's often different than this. Faith is often proclaimed as the way one is justified before God. Paul talks about that a lot in connection with faith. To be justified. To be justified means that God forgives all our sins through Jesus' blood and he grants us an eternal standing of righteous in his sight. Someone's invented a a cute wordplay that seeks to make justification simple. A lot of you guys have probably heard of this. Justification means that God sees me just as if I had never sinned. Or we could add, just as if I had always obeyed. In Romans 4, Paul brings faith and justification together this way. Will you guys look at Romans 4 with me? That's not the one. It should should be one that says uh, the righteousness is given through faith. Yes, okay. Let's, Let's try to read this slowly. That's the one. Let's try to read this slowly and together. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Notice in verse 24, believers are justified. They're declared to be righteous in God's sight. And that is a gift that by the end of this passage, we're told, is received through what? Through faith. Through believing God for it. Through depending on God for it. That's the end of verse 25. This is an incredible gift. We receive for free a clean record forever in God's sight. The judge hits the gavel. The trial is over. And the judge says about us, not guilty. Those who are guilty, he says not guilty. Those who are not innocent, he says innocent. Those who are not righteous, he says righteous. That's what he says in his courtroom about those who come to Christ. He says it about them forever. That's what it means to be justified. And Paul says, this is a gift received through what? Faith. Depending on God for it. Trusting God for it. But it's important to ask and answer If it's a gift that's received through faith, is it just faith in the gift? Is it faith in faith? What do we put our faith in to receive this gift of justification, of having that gavel come down and having God say, forgiven forever, innocent forever, righteous forever, blameless forever, 
justified forever. This is really important. This is really important to God because his son is really important to him. It might be said that the goal of God in all of creation is to glorify his son. Above all things, to magnify his son, to let his son be seen and lifted up. And so it's really important to God that our faith does that. And so Paul answers the question, what do we put our faith in to receive this in a very specific way in verse 25? Let's read that again. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. What Paul is saying is that biblical saving faith is a response to a specific person, Jesus, concerning a specific reality, the shedding of his blood for our sins. Biblical faith, saving faith, is not simply faith in God that he's a good God or Jesus that he wants to bless me. Those may be true, those things. God is indeed good. God does want to bless mankind. But God's goodness includes his unshakable commitment to justice. A justice which calls for the punishment of sinners. And so biblical saving faith sets its hope on Jesus in a specific way that verse 25 captures. It sets its hope on Jesus as the one who bears our sins on the cross and takes our blame for those sins and who has done that until every last drop of God's righteous punishment that we deserved was poured out on him. And because of that, his wrath, his just wrath, not his crazy, unbalanced, emotionally insane wrath, but his just wrath at our sin is turned away from us forever. Because Jesus took in himself every, away from us every reason why God should ever have wrath towards us. And then Christ rose from the dead, signifying that his work has finished, that he is indeed paid for our sins. He's no longer dying for them anymore. It's over. This is the ground zero of what it means for someone to hear and believe the gospel. To not only repent of their sins, to see sin as God sees it, to not only repent of believing that that we have the right to rule our own lives, But in light of all that, to then turn, not in hopelessness because of our guilt, nor turn to our own hope to resolve, to make it up to God through our morality. No, but to give up hiding anymore, not hide like Adam when he sinned, to give up despairing, to give up despairing and not despair like Judas when he sinned. And hung himself in despair. To give up on trusting in our own moral ability. Like Paul before he met Christ. 
who trusted in all that he could do and be for God to, to make himself righteous before God. No, to give up on all of that. To give up on hopelessness and despair. To give up on our own morality. To give up on hiding and pretending. No, we give up on all that and instead we place our hope in what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. A perfect, fully satisfying payment for all of our sin for all time. And this is saving faith. And think about this. Faith is the perfect means. It is perfectly suited to receive a gift. That's what faith does. Faith doesn't make promises. Trust doesn't make promises. It trusts God's promises. Faith, it doesn't claim sufficiency in itself. It it lays claim to someone else's sufficiency. Faith doesn't earn through obedience. Faith casts itself on the obedience of another. Faith doesn't even trust in faith. Faith trusts in Jesus. Faith is simply the hand that receives the free gift. And it is the only instrument through which the saving benefits of Christ can and do come to us. To paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, this is why even the smallest mustard seed of faith can cling to the greatest Savior. Because it's just the hand, even if the hand is frail and weak and shaking, that extends to receive the gift. Do you see how that glorifies Jesus? When you depend on someone, who gets the credit? The person you're depending on. When you depend on yourself, you get the credit. When you depend on Jesus, he gets the credit. God is jealous that his son gets the credit in your heart, in your life. He's not just jealous. He knows it's the only way for you to be sane and to be whole and to be really happy eternally. You were never meant, you were never created to depend on yourself. You are not the source. Even if you'd never sinned a lick in your life, you'd never be the source. God has just created billions and billions of dependent image makers, image bearers, who are not the source, but an image, a likeness of the source, but not the source. So in coming to Christ, we really fess up and own up to the ultimate reality. We're creation. We're dependent. We're sustained by somebody else. And just as we were always going to be sustained by someone else, Even if we hadn't sinned, we'd have to be sustained by oxygen and water and God's thought to just keep us going, his command to sustain our molecules. So in salvation, 
our most urgent crisis, we have to be sustained by someone else, by him. So faith is depending on that person to sustain us in the way that he has been provided to sustain us through his death and resurrection. A couple of final things. Uh, The lost person, the lost person, we've said this before, but I want to just, it bears repeating. The lost person needs to hear about Jesus and believe in him to be saved. I think this is something that really needs to shake me up again and shake all of us up again. The reality that God has provided salvation, but he has provided it through hearing and believing the news of his son. The gospel must be revealed. So if we can move forward, please, um, Brando, keep going. Keep going. That's it. That's it. Follow me here. So the lost person needs to hear about and believe in Jesus to be saved. This kind of means three things. They're not complicated. As soon as I say them, you'll get it. it. It means they need knowledge. They need certain truths about Jesus revealed. Remember Romans 10. It says, how are they to believe in him, Paul says, of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. God says that people have to hear about Jesus and his saving work. B, it means that people need to accept this as true. In Acts, 7, in Acts 11, 17, Paul says about the Bereans, he says they were more, of no, more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For, listen, they received the message with great eagerness, And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They're not only hearing, it's not only knowledge revealed to them, but they're processing it to say to themselves, can we accept this? Can we accept this? And lastly, personal trust must be placed in what is revealed. Paul says in Galatians 2, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He personally put his hope and his trust in Jesus. It's one thing to know where a chair is. It's another thing to say that chair looks like a good chair. It's a third thing to actually sit on the chair and depend on it and rely on it. And that kind of represents these, these three things of hearing about Jesus, affirming that these things about Jesus are true. But this last component, really when we talk about this last component, personal trust, that's really the center of faith. Is, is you and I personally saying, I'm going to depend on this person. I've heard about to do what he says he can do for me. This is why as important as relationships are with the lost, and they are important. One of my favorite phrases, I don't know if it's original to my friend Eric, but he said long ago um, that love builds a, tru- builds a bridge that truth can walk across. Love, our love for others can often build a bridge relationally between us and them so that truth can walk across it. That's a dynamic that God uses. But as important as those loving relationships with the lost are, we have to remember that the truth of Jesus Christ must come to that person. As Paul says, how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? God uses our friendships. He uses our good examples. But it is Jesus they need. So we must pray for opportunities and be ready for opportunities, asking God to leverage our relationships for Jesus. 
And th- this is one of the reasons why I'm not ashamed of tracks. I, tracks kind of are, are is in favor like they used to be in like the 80s and 90s when I first became a Christian in the 90s. Tr- you know, tracks was a big deal and then relational evangelism became more prominent in my, in my hearing, you know. It, but man, at Dorcas, when we're giving out clothing, if, if I can meet someone and talk to them and pray for them, that's great. But what I really love to do is get a good tract in their hands and just say, please go home and take a, a few minutes, take an hour, a half hour to just read this. This, this, is, this message has saved my life. You know, and, and I'm, I try to be... Um, as non-controlling sound as I can, I, I, I'll, I'll tell them like, hey, I, I know if, if, if you don't want, you can just toss this in the trash. I can't make you do that, right? I'm just begging you, you know? I, I'm putting myself before them as a beggar. Would you please just take this home and consider these truths? They have saved my life. They've kept me out of probably a mental asylum. They've kept me out of a long-standing addiction uh, that was probably g- g- gonna be mine, um, my inheritance in the flesh. But most of all, they've given me hope that doesn't go away. So, people need to hear about Jesus, to be saved by Jesus. From everything I know in Scripture, that is what we are taught from the Word of God. Number three, the free gift nature of the gospel must be preserved. The free gift nature of the gospel must be preserved. And uh, this was really crucial to to my own understanding of the gospel. I I was raised in an environment where the gospel was not a free gift. And and I'm not blaming anybody. That's just how it it, it ended up. I mean, I, I could say I understand where some of that came from outside myself, but I even know some things were working inside myself. And I, again, this is probably clear from what we've said, but it, it, it really bears repeating that the freeness of the gospel must be preserved. Paul says in Romans 4, 5, listen to this bold proclamation about the free nature of the gospel, the gift of it. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Listen to this boldness. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. That word wicked is interchangeable with the word ungodly. They're both used the same, it comes from the same Greek word, but they're used interchangeably. An ungodly man is a wicked man, and a wicked man is an ungodly man. But look at the the bold, (laughs) scandalous grace offered here. To the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies, who declares not guilty, who declares righteous, who declares blameless and forgiven forever. Trust God to do that. His faith is credited as righteousness. Which is another way of saying that by believing, he receives from God that verdict of righteous in Christ as a gift. By simply trusting God for it. Simply believing God to be and do for him what he cannot be and do for himself. Paul is very anxious to guard the freeness of the gospel. Galatians, 6, Galatians 1, 6 is such a great picture of this. He says there, I'm a, talking to people who are giving up on the free gift of salvation. And they are starting to seek to earn salvation through their religiosity. And he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. 
As we have already said, so I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. We don't want to be under God's curse. And so in whatever way we communicate the gospel to people, and there's some tension here because in the gospel, Jesus does call us to repent of our sins. If someone tells you that it's fine for you to keep sinning against God, he doesn't care. Just believe in Jesus for salvation. He doesn't care how you live your life. It's fine. That's not the gospel. But if we communicate repentance or the truth that Jesus calls us to follow him as Lord because he does, if we, if we communicate that in such a way that salvation is something we must earn, I think we're, we're making confusing the free gift aspect of the gospel we cannot earn his salvation or win it through obedience in fact that's why we need it because we cannot earn it or win it through our obedience i've struggled with the tensions in this for a long time but but the way that i kind of approach this and and i I offer this to you is i think this is biblical i think this is can be testified to in in different passages of scripture but when I'm sharing the gospel with someone or trying to explain the gospel to someone, I believe that it's in keeping with preserving the free gift nature of the gospel to make sure that people know early in that conversation about Jesus and their sin and his lordship, that they know early that Jesus does call us to follow him, but that in his salvation we receive as a free gift power to follow that simply by trusting him for the free gift of salvation, that salvation includes in the package, so to speak, the power of the person, rather the person of his Holy Spirit who comes to live inside us to give us the strength to follow him, that we have to believe God for that. Ezekiel 36 talks about the promise of the new covenant where God says, I will put a new spirit in you. I will give you a new heart. I will replace your heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh and I will cause you to be careful to follow in my ways. That's part of what salvation brings to people. And so we can preach a free gift salvation knowing that genuine saving faith in Christ will change the person forever. Not perfect yet, but they will yield a changed life because God's spirit will be at work in that person who has received a new heart as part of this free gift of salvation. 1 John 3, 9 says this. This is a promise and it's an exhortation. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Just be careful here. John is not saying that Christians will not sin. If you read the whole book of John, John actually affirms very clearly that Christians will sin. What he's saying is closer to the truth that a Christian cannot be happy cannot be content to keep rebelling against God. His heart will vomit out the life of rebellion that he is pursuing. 
Christians stray, they do backslide. They do get caught up in sins and entrapments. But through the Holy Spirit, they will not stay there. If the Holy Spirit is in them, he will vomit that life out. And he will bring them to a renewed repentance towards him. And in little ways, this is how we live every day, right? Every day we, hopefully, we call our souls each day to make that renewal with the Lord, to take up our cross and follow him. Forgive us for the ways we failed. We're going to try again today, Lord. We're going to try again today. That's the Holy Spirit working in us. Brothers and sisters, may God give us hearts for the lost so that whether from our way of life or whether from the words we speak, they're compelled to ask, how does someone become a Christian? And we can tell them, repent and believe the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave, proving that that death has been accepted by God. We can tell them that God is calling them to turn from their waywardness and and turn in hope to Jesus for the forgiveness that we need and the power to follow him that we need. And that this is a gift. Listen, in a few days, many of us are going to see loved ones. So before we take communion, I just want to ask you guys to take a few moments right now and bring some of those people into your mind and ask the Lord right now the people you're going to see. Maybe you're not going away. There's people at work. It doesn't have to be at the Thanksgiving table. But in the next week, ask the Lord to bring this next week before you and ask him to give you at least one conversation between now and next Sunday where you can engage with someone about Jesus, where you can be an ambassador for them, for him. So let's just take that to prayer right now. Let's ask the Lord to give us one conversation where we can share Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in him with them. We'll just be quiet for a few minutes or a few moments here.